Amazon Web Services changed the economics of building an internet application. Instead of having to invest tens of thousands of dollars upfront for hardware, developers can pay for services over time as their application scales. As Amazon Web Services has grown to be a gigantic platform, the documentation and the articles about how to use cloud infrastructure has become insufficient. As an answer to this, Joshua Levy initiated the Open Guide to Amazon Web Services, an open source collection of resources available on GitHub. Joshua has experience at a variety of companies, including most recently Viv, the conversational interface that was recently acquired by Samsung. So he's got lots of experience to share. And in our conversation, Josh brought his years of experience to the table to explain the risks and the benefits and the alternatives to Amazon Web Services. Josh has become a friend over the last year, and if you get a chance to have a conversation with him, I highly recommend it. He will be at the reInvent conference in Vegas, which is the Amazon Web Services conference. And if you are interested in talking to him about the AWS Open Guide in late November at reInvent, or if you're interested in talking to him about anything else, please reach out to him. You can find his contact information on the Amazon Web Services Open Guide and I hope you'll enjoy this episode. I think you will, because Josh is a great conversationalist. Joshua Levy is the creator of the Open Guide to Amazon Web Services. Josh, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, great to be here. So we're going to be talking about this Open Guide to Amazon Web Services, but first let's start off with the question of what an Open Guide is, because this is not a term that is commonly used. What does that What does that term mean? What is an open guide? Right. It, it's a term we use uh, really just to kind of capture a couple ideas. And, and, and one is that, uh, that this is not a, a, a standard publication like a book where you uh, or a blog where one author writes their ideas down and then everyone else reads it. This is really more akin to open source software where we... Uh, assemble a lot of information or tips or tricks or, or other things that we think are useful and, uh, and publish it like open source, but, uh, but encourage contributions from anyone. And in a way, you get to contribute based on the merits of your contribution, much as with open source software. Um, it's a pretty simple idea in some ways because we're, we're used to it in the, uh, in the open source world, and uh, many of us use GitHub many hours a day and, and, and contribute to a lot of open source in small ways. But I think that we often don't apply some of those same ideas to, uh, to sharing information. Um, you do see some examples of this now on GitHub, but this is really sort of an extension of that. And, uh, and so this, this guide uh, arose from some frustrations around, uh, around needing good, actionable, helpful information around AWS. And so uh, that, that's, I've done a couple of these around other topics, but uh, but this one really arose with myself and uh, and Thanos Boscus, uh, another engineer, and we have just just basically plugged away and got a lot of engagement from a community to begin putting uh, a guide like this together. Why is GitHub the place to host an open guide? It seems like there's plenty of publishing platforms, uh, or you could make a wiki. What's special about GitHub? Right, and it's an, it's an important question. Um, it, it's actually, GitHub is, uh, I mean, this is maybe a slight digression, but I, th I think uh, I've been in software many years, and, and I think many folks who have seen the trajectory of open source software would agree that GitHub's an, an amazing shift in the way that we build software. And it's not an obvious one. It's, um, it, it might seem that it's just a slight improvement in certain ways on you know, a better user interface on Git. But of course, it's not that actually. The real fundamental change is that it's an entire community, and in a, and it's a, also a, a network of trust among engineers because we all have a GitHub profile and an identity, somewhat like Twitter or uh, or Medium, and that really is helpful for knowing who you're working with and working together in a in a more collaborative way across the globe. So this network, not just it's not just the user interface, is what's really valuable, uh, and it, it helps us know who we're working with and getting some context on what it is and building trust around what we're reading. So is that is that that a layer of identity? And I mean we've seen it's interesting because we've seen these identity platforms be so crucial to 
some of the software that is really getting a lot of press these days. I mean, the identity the idea of identity is crucial to Airbnb. It's crucial to Uber. Uh, obviously, crucial to anything built around Facebook and at Quora, of course. But you, you and I have both used Quora, um, and Quora, obviously, the real identity was a real was a big differentiator in terms of the quality of answers that you got because people are accountable for their answers unless they write anonymously, um, which probably has some penalties for how how much distribution their answers get. So. Um, is was the identity aspect of GitHub was that one of the big drivers in terms of what made it more appealing to use GitHub than something more faceless like Wikipedia? Yeah, that's part of it. Uh, so definitely, identity is really a, a means to get to get a little more trust. And I think what what I found is, and this is true, I think for a lot of software engineering topics and more broadly on the internet, you uh, when you're looking at a piece of information that's really important to you, like you're trying to solve a problem or you're implementing some distributed systems algorithm for your company and millions of dollars are on the line, you, uh, you might want to know that the, the tip that you're getting is, you know, is from a legit source and you want to know who's, you know, who's suggesting it and why. And uh, there's a lot of information on the internet where people are suggesting things because they might uh, be making some ad revenue or some affiliate revenue or, uh, or they're doing content marketing for a product of their own. So it, it's important to kind of understand why and how information is, is being given to you. And I think we, we take that so for granted, just like the air we breathe online, but it's really important to just to, to acknowledge that you, you want to see where information is coming from and who is giving it to you. But then that makes it very hard to uh, just start a blog up randomly and build a lot of trust. And so what we were thinking was that... Um, uh, if we can build a community of, of good experts, people who really have uh, you know, good knowledge in AWS in particular, then having that community review and edit and work together on it kind of builds a certain level of trust. So that, that, that's one piece. Um, and, and then another piece is that uh, is GitHub has this mechanism where you can see what other people are looking at via stars or forks. And that really helps you understand that something has some value. So I, just like Medium has hearts, GitHub has stars. Uh, these things are really helpful just to know that, hey, this is actually something useful. I'm not wasting my time reading it. And I, I think that, that GitHub gives that, 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 that network uh, effect, which is really valuable. Absolutely. So we've talked in the abstract about what makes GitHub a good publishing platform, what an open guide is. What about AWS? Why is... Why do we need an AWS guide, and what is insufficient? I mean, because AWS has tons of documentation. Probably, probably one of the significant differentiators between AWS and the other cloud providers is AWS. Like, I think this is something where first mover advantage comes in. Is like if you're a first mover advantage, your documentation is going to be better. Um, but what is insufficient about the official AWS documentation? Right. It's it's a good question, and. Uh, I think if you actually talk to uh, a lot of folks who use AWS, and I, and I should digress here for a second to say, I mean, AWS is the dominant infrastructure as a service provider. So there are a lot of engineers who use AWS in small amounts or in large amounts, depending on, on the, the degree to their company is engaged. So this is a big, a big, uh, a big market, and, a lot, and it's also a very complex product. So there's a lot of people with this pain around figuring out how to use AWS or, or solving specific needs. And it's not just beginners and it's not just experts. It's really across the board because it's a complex product. And fundamentally, again, it, it does kind of align with what, where the information is, 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 help, is helpful and where, where, what it covers. So a lot, I, I think if you talk to a lot of engineers, you'll realize that they often have certain pieces of knowledge they would only get by asking another engineer they really trust so trust is important. And they'd go over, they'd get them a beer or something like this. They'd be like, hey, how did that work out when you migrated from your on-premises data center to AWS? And they would tell stories about it. Now, it might seem just like a beer, but actually that's really, really useful because they might say, yeah, well, I use this provider or I use this tool and it really worked out poorly for us because of this reason or that reason. Now, no one writes blogs and says that, like usually, partly because they don't have time, partly because they don't want to offend people. There's a lot of reasons, but you do get that information over a beer. And 
and that's really valuable. And, and so that's one category of things. It's, I really think it's like the beer test. It's like, imagine you have 30 minutes with an expert. What do you ask them over a beer? And you'll realize it's rarely something you can Google for. And, and so we really were thinking that the AWS in particular is, um, is a topic where there's tons of gotchas. It's just a complicated system. And there's so many, and the, the gotchas are often have high cost. You might architect your system in a way where it's really hard to secure. And then you have to pay a lot of engineering effort or time to, later to fix that. Or you may put it together in a way that is uh, not highly available and you don't realize until something goes wrong. And, uh, and if you're head of DevOps or something like that, you're, you're, you're next on the line, or at least you feel that responsibility. And so people are, have a real sense of wanting to build the best products they can, but are often running into questions or roadblocks. And then finally, there's another category, which I really think is just where you're stuck. And it's just like, I'm sure there's like a few people in the world who know exactly the solution to the problem I'm having right now, and I don't know how to find them or how to get that answer. I think we've all seen that, right? Um, so, so there's like an XKCD uh, uh, comic I think that's famous about someone's like seeing a Stack Overflow question with no answer, and they're like, "What did you know? Like, well, well, I have exactly this problem." So, I, I think it's it. Uh, this is true in general in software. You know, when we're writing software, it's complicated. But AWS is the stakes are higher, and the surface area of the products is much higher. So, there's a lot more details. So, is uh, is it in Amazon's best interest to provide um, the type of information that is in the open guide, or is there some is there some point of uh, incentive that is uh, different between the open guide and the internal AWS documentation that leads to differences in the the material that is in the documentation, the official documentation versus the open guide? Yeah. So it, again, it really does depend on you know. The, the, Information that's on the web is on there because it's in someone's interest for it to be there, and uh, and Amazon really does have an interest, which is a you know very legitimate and very helpful to make sure that we all understand how to use their products. They're a little less incentivized to tell you when you should use AWS versus use another solution. Uh, so if you look at AWS documentation, they're they're really quite exhaustive at giving you the details, but they won't always tell you, you know, maybe you shouldn't be using this particular service. You might want to use an open source solution because you'll have better control. So if you're wanting to, I'm just going to pick an example at random, but if you're wanting to uh, to use Elasticsearch, should you deploy it yourself or should you use Amazon's managed service? Or if you're wanting to use Map, Hadoop MapReduce, should you deploy it yourself or should you use EMR? Those choices are, obviously Amazon would like you to use all of their services all the time, so they have lots of blogs telling you why they're useful. And a lot of those are really are accurate, but they're not, you can't. They have. They're just never going to mention the situations where their products uh, are not delivering. And I and I think that uh, it really helps. This again, the beer test would be: you would ask your expert friend over a beer, "Hey, is there another solution to this, or should I be doing it this way?" And that's really helpful. So so we do uh, try to cover not just AWS details, like how do you do X with AWS. We really try to cover an overview of like, when should you use AWS? In what situations are there other products? We even have a little service matrix, which I hope we keep expanding, kind of saying, what are the equivalent products and other services to AWS products, uh, you know, in services? So like, if you're gonna use EMR, what's the open source alternative and so on. So uh, we do try to cover those other things. And I think that that's part of the value. Are you seeing a lot of people build heterogeneous clouds, you know, where they'll have, they use AWS for one thing, they use Google for another thing, they use DigitalOcean for a third thing, or or is it a big tax to have heterogeneity among the cloud services that you use? Another really good question. So another thing that, that, that this this whole community has really been helpful for is, is I think there's a very isolated subsets of people using the cloud, each in their own way. And then sometimes aside from consultants, very few people get to talk with a lot of people in those different categories. So there's a category of people here in Silicon Valley, you know, I'm familiar with a lot of my, myself and many friends are sort of startup people. So we've worked in startups and we're, a, you know, used to having scrappy small teams building things from scratch. And in that sort of situation, you often want to pick something like AWS as, you know, as, as a, and just deploy with it completely. Uh, you might consider another option like DigitalOcean or Heroku when you're getting started. 
or in certain situations. You might pick Microsoft Azure because you're you're interested in a Microsoft solution. You might pick Google Cloud because they're grow up and growing, and you might have more familiarity with some of their their systems. But either way, you'd pick cloud first and just build it all yourself. That said, it's a completely different scenario than someone who is coming into a, a large bank and realizes that their infrastructure isn't scaling and wants to think about putting some of it into the cloud. That's complex. Some banks do put their things in public cloud. Some don't. It, there's a lot of compliance and regulatory concerns. There's a lot of momentum and existing systems you have to take care of. So that's a completely different scenario. Where so so in large orgs like 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 existing orgs, there's a there's a move toward hybrid cloud where you keep some things on premises and some things in the cloud. Uh, within startups, there's a tendency just to do it all in the cloud and not go old school at all. And then there's a bunch of things sort of in the middle where uh, uh, you know companies have some existing infrastructure but might try to migrate fully to the cloud when they get the chance. So I want to talk through some. Amazon services, just because um, I think these can serve as discussion points for the type of material that would be discussed in the open guide that might not be discussed in the Amazon documentation. It might not be discussed on Stack Overflow, might not be discussed on Quora. Um, Basically, I want to touch on some points that might give more exposure to why the open guide is useful. So the first uh, example I'm, I'm thinking of is Kinesis. Like there is this Kinesis service. This is kind of like a managed Kafka within AWS. Uh, and Kinesis to me seems like the type of thing where like Amazon would be very incentivized to tell you, here are all the awesome benefits of Kinesis, but uh, they're not going to tell you, here's how Kinesis compares to Kafka, or here's how it compares to... Uh, I don't know, Confluence version of Kafka. Um, so, so what, I mean, can you explain, like, what kinds of things might you read about Kinesis on the open guide that you might not find elsewhere? That, that's another good example. I, I, think, I think I mentioned uh, EMR versus deploying your own Hadoop cluster is another example. There's a, there's a whole bunch of these. Um, and often they're not just a, B, a versus B kinds of things. They're often like, you know, slightly, they're, they're comparing slightly different kinds of fruit where they're, you know, they're not quite apples and oranges, but they're not, they're not exactly two similar apples because they might be two solving slightly different problems. Um, so we do have some coverage of that. Uh, uh, I actually hope we can get more soon. We have a couple of new Kinesis experts in the group, but, um, but uh, the, the answer to a question like that just isn't simple. Um, it, it, there may be a lot of situations where you just want to use the Amazon solution because you can scale it quickly and it meets your needs. But often you'll end up hitting certain corner cases or certain scale considerations where you might want to tweak things or adjust how they function in general. And, and then having your own, say, managed Kafka cluster where you can fork it, like you know, like you mentioned, the, the Confluence fork, or, or, or you can tweak or adjust parameters, or you can hire experts who have a lot of, like, you know, uh, who are you know, Kafka committers or something like that that can be really useful. So I, I guess there isn't a simple answer in the sense that there's no, no one's going to tell you with a, a 10 second conversation what, your, uh, uh, what, what choice you should make. But there are good reasons to pick Kinesis versus not, and sometimes a hybrid. Maybe you want to use Kinesis for one the piece of your system and not for another. And really, it's just a matter of summarizing a lot of those use cases. So we, there are some, we do have some, uh, uh, some basics about when to use Kinesis. And then we also cover gotchas, which I, I mean, I think that that's one of those things that applies to open source as well as to AWS. But, um, but I think that knowing what some of the gotchas and warnings are about a particular service are really helpful when you're making the consideration of whether, whether to use it. Um, I, I'm personally not a Kinesis, deep enough in Kinesis to tell you off, off the top of my head what our top gotchas on Kinesis are. But, um, but uh, it, it, you, you can check them out if you check out the guide. And there's, there's, um, there's, there's definitely, they're, they're, they're a bit subtle. I mean, there's, there's advantages to Kinesis and there's advantages to Kafka and there's advantages to other solutions. Um, but but it's, we're hoping that by, you know, get a few more experts and we'll, our coverage of Kinesis will even improve. We have, um, we have, we have some pretty deep coverage on some of the services. And I've noticed that as they, as it expands, it's sort of the gotcha section and the kind of, uh, the, the, the tip section just will often have really critical little details, the kinds of things that, you know, 
might save you not just hours, but maybe days or weeks of effort if you know if you know them. So I really love to see those those get added to the guide. Another area is the Amazon ECS, the Elastic Container Service, which people on AWS might be using in place of something like Kubernetes or something like Mesos, where, um, I mean, this this I think is an interesting example because ECS, um, it's, it's closed source, so it's not going to have the same kind of aggressive community adoption and evolution that you're going to see with something like Kubernetes. Um, and at the same time, it has lock-in. So if you, um, if, if your system, uh, if, if, uh, if over time, you know, uh, the evolution of Kubernetes really outpaces ECS and then you're locked into this, uh, closed source solution, then, um, you know, you might start to lag behind other people who are, uh, running on Kubernetes. Um, so I guess with with that as an example, I think Kinesis is also an example of this. What's the narrative? What what is the the true narrative around lock in for Amazon? Because I, I heard yeah. I heard a podcast where there was a, a an AWS executive who was talking about how they really don't try to create lock in. Like the lock in that they create is, is with some services is just coincidental with um, what they're building. Um, do you think that's accurate? Yeah, or yeah do no, you- so. Yeah, so I, I think you're really hitting on the question of lock-in, which is a really, really important one. In fact, uh, for some companies, it can be like life or death almost. Um, so, so uh, it's not for all companies. It really depends on the business. But, but, but actually, that is one of the areas. I mean, as Thanos and I were working on this, what we were um, really thinking a lot about how to structure and highlight different pieces of the guide. And I think that one of the things that's been pretty helpful is is having these specific types of tips highlighted. And one of them is lock-in. Um, because again, you're not going to see uh, you, uh, this highlighted in most blogs or most, uh, you know, certainly the AWS docs. But um, you uh, you do sometimes have choices you make that are not going to lock you in too much. For example, EMR, uh, in, to, to, uh, I'm just picking this example yet again, is is pretty compatible with Hadoop. So if you want to migrate your Hadoop jobs that you currently have running on EMR to your own cluster, it's a very manageable task. Similarly, if you're using, you know, if you're deploying your database to uh, RDS and you're having Amazon manage your Postgres database, that's very manageable to just move it to your own server should you ever want to. Um, other services are not that way. And then they may be adding a lot of value and it doesn't mean you shouldn't use them, but you should also know that you're making a choice where unwinding that choice will have engineering cost. And that might be time or money or both. Um, so the with with a lot of these services and some of the ones that are more cutting edge from Amazon, and I would say, for example, Lambda, where there's a lot of adoption, it's really helpful and it's great as adding that value. But you should also be aware that if you write all of your code in a way that's very tied to Lambda, then you, that, that, that is a certain amount of lock-in you're going to have to uh, accept, either accept or be willing to pay to undo in a, in a pretty expensive way later. Where, where um, does the lock-in from Lambda come from? Because as I understand, it's just like you write your code and then it just executes on a random server somewhere. And that sounds like it's very convertible to Google Cloud Functions or Azure whatever it's called right it's all it's it's all it's all uh, levels of lock in right but say you it, it, and this is true across the board another example that i think is on the on this kind of gray area is uh, is amazon linux a lot of people do deploy with amazon linux on their deployments in amazon and that really makes a lot of sense cuz amazon supports that linux better it gives you a lot of uh, confidence that amazon is making sure it's going to work as opposed to if you're using ubuntu or uh, or CentOS, or one of these other distributions. So it seems like a great idea, but then, like slowly, subtleties will start to be built, it, baked into your code based on dependencies or assumptions around Amazon Linux. And similarly, uh, I, I think Lambda is a little more than this. It, it, it may, uh, it may be in principle that a lot of your logic is written in Python or JavaScript, and you're like, well, I could just move that to other functions. But the entire cycle of how you're building a system, including the people, the deployment, the team. The, the way you do your continuous integration, the way you do your testing, once you take that 
look and look at it holistically, you'll see it's very shaped by the t infrastructure you're using. And for you to suddenly say, oh, I'll just pull that out and put it into a new, uh, a new framework, it's not going to happen overnight. And as soon as you start playing that out in your mind, you'll realize that means, oh, that's engineering cost. And that is lock-in. Mm. Um, so, but that said, you might, you're, I don't want to be negative on, on using those sorts of services because in some ways by saying, hey, I'm just going to deploy this with Lambda and move forward as fast we can, as we can, you may be able to move a lot faster and do things you never would have been able to do, either in terms of scaling up fast or shipping something quickly. So it's an amazing tools kit. It's just that as engineers and as architects or as entrepreneurs, we all have to think what are the ways we get to where we want to go and what are the risks of how we get locked into our particular path. Mm. So often it's really just a complicated trade-off. Um, but I do think that often those choices get made without being mindful of them. So you're, you're just like, hey, Lambda is the new coolest thing, let's use it. And that, that's a good, that, that, that could be a, the right choice for you. But it's good to think about it. Um, I, perhaps, uh, I, I think this, this often applies more to larger companies too. If you're three guys in a startup and you're like in a pinch, you might be able to just rewrite all your code from AWS to Google Cloud or to something else if you ever you want to. And it's not really gonna be a dominant factor for you. Hmm. But if you're, uh, if you have a thousand engineers and you're at a, a Fortune 500 company and you're making a big choice around how to piece together some of your infrastructure, those sorts of that that takes a lot of time to move that that big ship around. So uh, if you are making a choice like that, you want to think through what the costs are, and one you know what, what what the cost will be if you need to change that. You have to admire the sophistication of the decision by Netflix to go so accelerate so hard into AWS and just like go for like full full force just adopt it relentlessly um and I, d I don't think you see a lot of people other people do that cuz I mean Netflix they, and they just blog about it constantly that yeah yeah we just use you know we just use this uh you know this Amazon managed service here and then they, we build our own thing here um and I still I don't actually don't have a great sense for how Netflix makes build versus buy decisions I guess I mean do you do you have a sense for that and and I think that has some reflection on this conversation because uh, as you're saying like there are some companies for which AWS is life or death I think those um, those companies where AWS if AWS really eats into your margin um, that can be really important if you're a commodity type of business but Netflix is less let Netflix is so differentiated that arguably it's not a commodity if they needed to raise prices like really needed to raise prices they probably could um, so I mean yeah no I think I think you're 100% right so the lock-in consideration it's one of the many considerations when you're picking you know the infrastructure you're using but uh, but the lock-in consideration is fundamentally an economic consideration because it's really about saying I don't have the flexibility to change my infrastructure which means that I'm giving my infrastructure provider a lot of pricing power. They can raise their price 10% and I can't use them 10% less. I have to, I'm all in. I can't change my mind and say, oh, I'll use a little bit of this other infrastructure instead. So that means that there's a certain balance of power between you and your, and your vendor, which is you know, your cloud provider. And that's true across all kinds of vendors if you're, if you're in business and you're using, relying on, on, on a, a solution that's kind of all in like that. And so if you're doing that, then that, if your margins are very, you know, you know, incredibly high, and I think Netflix is in this category, and you have a lot of business and you negotiate good rates, which I think, you know, it's pretty obvious from the outside that Netflix is such a, um, a flagship customer, I'm sure they don't pay the same uh, rates that some customers do, then, um, then it can be really a great, could be a great move for you because you're getting to move faster and out-execute the competition, which Netflix is doing. They, they, their product is you know, just head and shoulders about, above the alternatives in a lot of aspects, right? So th they're, they're able to emphasize product and they don't have to be worrying about every penny they're spending on infrastructure. A lot of companies are not in that, uh, don't have that luxury or they might not have the luxury in the future. And so, they, so it, depending on how they're planning to scale. So I think it really, you'll hear people debate, oh, cloud is a mistake, never use cloud, or definitely anyone who doesn't use cloud, you know, public clouds like AWS or Google Cloud is, is an idiot. I, I think it's far more subtle than that, and it's really about a business decision, uh, and, it, and it depends on your business. The Open Guide has 
a lot of material not just about the specific services, but there's plenty of material about kind of more abstract things like how do you manage an AWS deployment and how does support work on an AWS deployment. So I want to talk about those issues. Um, what are the biggest challenges of ongoing management of an AWS deployment? What are people talking about in the community where they say day-to-day X is the most frustrating thing about running my ongoing AWS deployment, maybe perhaps agnostic of cost? Right, right. So I think there's different categories. I do think cost for some companies is a big one. Um, but if you set that one aside, uh, uh, then I, I think, first off, a lot of people are thrilled and happy comparing their solutions in AWS compared to, uh, you know, old school solutions they may have had to struggle with in the past. So there's certainly a lot of positive, uh, you know, about flexibility around managing your, managing your infrastructure as code. So you can scale, you can scale and deploy things differently. So, so I think there's a lot of positive aspects. On the negative aspects, I think it's an entirely different world and the ecosystem of the tools you use to manage your uh, AWS infrastructure is pretty fragmented. So um, taking just examples, things like configuration management, uh, a lot of people have traditionally used Chef and Puppet to manage the state on their servers. Uh, now a lot of folks use Ansible or SaltStack as well. And there's a few other smaller solutions or things you can bake, you know, build your bake yourself. Uh, the choices around what way to apply those different tools is really hard to know, and you almost have a certain amount of lock-in with those tools themselves. And so you might go all in on Chef or Puppet, and then realize that you have, uh, you know, there's some challenges that you wish you could you could work around, but you're not going to change at that point. So um, I, I think that the tools around managing uh, the infrastructure and how you scale and and everything from cost visibility to managing and slicing and dicing your costs. So that that includes things like, well, which department is spending what on AWS to things like reviewing or controlling what deployments you have. So for reliability or high availability or processes or compliance to, um, to actually just enabling your software engineering team to execute and build things as fast as possible. All of those are dependent on the way you're building and deploying your code and the tools you're using to support that. And it, it, they're just, the, there's a lot of options and every vendor will tell you how, why they're the best and every open source package seems to have a great community of people telling you how awesome it is. But it's a little hard to, to know what, uh, what should you do if you're in a given situation. Um, and so I, I think we're just trying to cover a bit more of that interstitial information, sort of saying, well, here's big picture you could choose for configuration management one of a few of these tools, but here are your goals. Like here's how to help help you think through it. Um, and and I think it also again test it comes down to that getting a beer test. You'll find that very often engineers when they're like talking about these sorts of things over a beer, they'll or DevOps or you know folks like this. You, we're, we're just exchanging information around like, hey, what happened when you know how did it go when you were using Ansible for this. And they'll say, yeah, you love Ansible for configuration management, but I've had trouble using it for provisioning because of X and Y. And that's a good piece of information, right? And then you, I think that the trying to share a little more of that information in, a, in an easy way is helpful. Um, obviously, you can't cover everything that you would get over a beer like that, and some things are very situation-specific. But, uh, but it, 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 it's been our attempt to begin putting a lot more of that, what I would call tribal knowledge, down. Um, this, this might also be a good time just to mention, I mean, one other thing we've done since we launched this more formally you know, two weeks ago is, um, or I guess going on, you know, so, so this month, is, uh, is we have a Slack channel as well. And I think that often some of the things that are a little less codified, a little less clear, uh, and not clear exactly how you would write them uh, down, maybe because not all of us are experts uh, or we don't have the full experience, is we just chat about it. And that often will then, after a couple discussions with a, you know, a few people, We'll have some ideas and be like, well, actually, it seems like we should summarize this, and this is important. Gotcha. So, does the does the knowledge from the Slack channel eventually get congealed and codified into something that you put on the AWS Open Guide that's on GitHub? Yeah. So, it, big picture, I mean, maybe this is a good time to kind of mention our sort of vision for this. You know, Donis and I have been kind of working on the guide, but in some ways, we're um, we're building something that's more than just a text file, right? So on, on GitHub, it's just a text document. People might be just be like, is that all there is? It's just this, this text document. So um, but what really is the value is that we have a lot of readers. We have a lot of contributors. Uh, 
we're over 70 contributors now, maybe 80, somewhere in that range. Um, uh, we have folks who have deep expertise in specific areas who have edited a lot of these pieces. And because of that, really, we have a lot of value just with the community. And I, and I think that in some ways, it's our ability to uh, share that knowledge and uh, begin assembling it into the guide is just as important as what the guide looks like right now. Just like that's true with open source too, right? Open source is a, is a process and a, and a way you're making something better, not just the, the, the piece of version of the code you're using today. And so uh, what we would love to see is, is building up that, that process, right? Where we have the ability to chat informally about anything, just like we would over a beer, but then we're also capturing it in the guide with that mentality that if this is useful, and if I'm having this problem, maybe a thousand other engineers around the world are having this exact same problem, and maybe we should put that down in a way that we can all look up and search for. So, are you saying you you hope to turn it into more of a platform, something that's more like a wiki, or it's actually very much already is this? So, so GitHub in a way is a collaborative editing platform. Mm -hmm. We already have it; it's right there. Anyone can file a pull request, and I invite any listener uh, who's interested, please do. Uh, read it. If you see an error, if you see something that you think you can make better, pull requests are welcome from everyone. And then we can uh, review it. And so uh, uh, Thanos or I review a lot of things. We have editors who are topic experts on a bunch of topics. So anytime someone comes up and they're like talking about VPCs in depth, I know the you know the guy who knows VPCs in depth, and he'll give it a look. And he'll you know he's he's you know one of our experts. And similarly for a lot of topics like that. So it gives us a way to review your you know, contributions from whoever has put something in. And then secondly, maybe you look at this, but you're like, I'm not sure about that, but I'm not really sure what to change either. That's when you talk about it, and that's what the Slack group um, is for. You might also just have a question. You're like, I'm really stuck, and the guide is not answering my problem. I'm wondering how to you know, get this, uh, this, this load balancer problem I'm seeing uh, to understand it, and, I, and I, I simply don't understand why it's not working this way that when you, the docs say it should. And it's not in the guide. That could well be a gotcha that a lot of people are having. So you could ask on Stack Overflow, and you know, there's no harm in doing that. But I think that you might find a lot more benefit by joining the Slack channel, talking to a few of us, because a lot of us are online a lot of the time, figure out whether that's a reusable tip. And then we fold it into the guide. So we're building, a, we're, we're building this knowledge resource based on actual discussions. And I think so. You, you can see the Slack is like the the, the community aspect of, of the writing uh, that we're doing. The consulting and uh, support ecosystem around AWS is quite fascinating. I mean, for if if you're if you have an AWS deployment and you can you know you you've got the option of. Like if if you're in a situation where like I, oh my AWS deployment's breaking or it feels insecure or something, you've got the the choice of using the Amazon. You can use Amazon support. They have support that uh, I'm not sure what the quality is like. I imagine it's pretty good because it's the customer service on Amazon.com is pretty good. I imagine it's somewhat similar or hopefully. Um, but then there's also like all of these third party providers that you can go to and say, hey, help me out with my deployment. Like I bumped into a guy at the airport who worked for Rackspace, we had a conversation, and he said that much of Rackspace's business involves actually helping companies work with AWS, and I had no idea that this was part of Rackspace's business to consult about a different cloud. Um, it's kind of uh, how times have changed, right? So, like, Rackspace used to be the big provider of their, their own, but Amazon has so dominated the landscape of of, uh, of of infrastructure for for deploying things that Rackspace now has a major strategy around uh, around doing consulting and helping people use AWS, which would have probably not uh, not, not not been their their initial plan uh, a number of years back. But uh, but yeah, absolutely. So there's this really large ecosystem of consulting, and I think that that actually reflects some of what we said earlier, which is it's a complex process and problem to deploy your 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 infrastructure and your 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 applications to the cloud and there's so many corner cases and complexities that almost it's rare for large companies to have all the in-house expertise they need and that's where the consultants come in and it there are big consulting companies there are partners there's a whole ecosystem of partners with Amazon um, and Amazon themselves of course give you support if you have questions or problems so there's a cert certain things you can get from help from Amazon with 
But for large efforts, very often companies will rely on Amazon, you know, certified consultants. And that that's really a good aspect, though I also think that it highlights the fact that you're often paying for people's time when you because you can't find the information written down. So what we would love to see is that the things that are easy, the things that are repeated, rather than pay for an hour of someone's time, let's try to have that be written down, that piece be written down. And then even those consultants, rather than having to do the same thing over and over again, the, the easy things are written down. And then the consultants can work on the harder problems. So uh, it's kind of a, the, the, it, it, w- this, this, this documentation effort is really complementary to what consultants do. And, and we love help from consultants because um, AWS consultants get to see the, how the problems repeat across different, uh, different companies and different applications. And they're like, oh man, everyone gets stuck by this problem and we have to go clean it up. And then we'll, I'm like, well, why don't, why don't we fix that initially? So how by telling people about it instead of you know, having to go clean it up later? I want to I wanna kind of dig, digress for a bit and talk just about clouds more generally because what I find interesting, AWS was not the first cloud. I mean, there were things like Loud Cloud, that company that Ben Horowitz and Mark Andreessen worked on. There was Slicehost, which is a company that was acquired by Rackspace. What did AWS do differently? Because you've been around for a while. I mean, you probably have some perspective on this. Why Why did AWS kind of become the company that just dominated in market share? Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of people have thought, wondered about that. Um, I can certainly give my thoughts. I, I wouldn't say I, I am... Uh, I'm the world expert on this, and there are people who may have deeper thoughts than I do. But, but I, I do feel that um, Amazon fundamentally was solving a problem that they themselves had, which meant that they were building tools that they found useful. So I, I think that from a fundamental perspective, it's easier to build and meet a need when you, you understand that need well. And so Amazon already was deploying servers and you know has enlarged e-commerce site all the time and realized a lot of the challenges of managing that infrastructure. So they were out of the gate solving real problems that were uh, pretty significant. And Amazon's always had a, a pretty good policy of using their own tools, which means that, you know, this dog fooding your own infrastructure means that you're gonna build things in a way that, that you want them. I think you can see as a result of that, if you look at Amazon services, they're often uh, kind of complex and uh, not, uh, especially in the early days, I mean, they were, there were more more things you could tune and adjust. You had full control over what operating system you run. For when you ran EC2, for example, you had full control of how you configure and manage it. it. Meant the learning curve was a lot higher, but it meant you could kind of do anything you needed to with enough effort. And I think that that fundamentally matters with infrastructure is that you, that as you scale, you start wanting to have control and ability to achieve everything you need. And Amazon has been doing it them for themselves, and so they've been that gave them a real leg up. I think they also run it as a very reliable enterprise product. By doing that, they also signaled to everyone they were all in on making this work. So for many years, a lot of uh, people did not. Uh, so they might take. They know that Heroku is, you know, going to work very hard to, to make their services uh, work because their business depends on it. That said, Heroku is a much simpler service. A lot of people did not find it could scale to where to levels they were interested in. And back in back in the day, you know, it's more 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 for you know hobbyist or small, small deployments. And so, but um, when it came to Amazon, they, they were a large company signaling that these complex products were going to be critical to their business for the future. And so you would have a little bit of confidence working on their, on their systems. And I think it took a while for Google Cloud to reach that point as well, because you, uh, as, as someone who's pick, you know, picking these things within a company, you often are you're saying, well, is this service going to be here? What if EC2 had been canceled after two years, right? But Amazon was doubled down on it over and over and over on on uh, on AWS, and people have a lot of confidence that it's a key piece of how the internet internet actually runs at this point. Um, Google Cloud is getting to that point where, but it took them a while because honestly, it wasn't clear. At least I mean, I remember looking at this and being like, I, I'm not. I don't personally have confidence that. Uh, a change of VP at Google wouldn't mean that some of my services get canceled, and that that uh, that that wasn't clear with Google because it wasn't clear it was core to Google's mission. But Amazon did a really good job of making it core to their mission as well. So 
So those are two reasons. And then finally, they've just done a great job of shipping a ton of products. They ship products very, very fast across many different kinds of services. Not all of them work well. That's actually another thing, another topic for the, in the guide. Because, <laughs> you know, not everything that Amazon ships is, uh, is great out of the gate at all. Um, uh, but they deserve a lot of credit for that in the sense that they are trying a lot of these services and then get to see what sticks. So uh, a lot of folks, when they first saw Lambda, were a little bit skeptical, but it's been getting a lot of traction. And you start seeing the real value there, and it looks now like it'll be a very dominant force in the cloud coming up. So it, it's, it, it, I think those combination of factors have led to Amazon uh, doing really well. Does Amazon deprecate services? Eventually, yeah. Uh, not rapidly, which is good. Uh, there are a few things that have been deprecated. Like SimpleDB is uh, probably not something you... They don't, I'm not sure they actually say on their website it's deprecated, but you, pretty much everyone knows, and we mention it, <laughs> is that uh, you probably shouldn't be building new things on top of SimpleDB. That's an example. Um, there's also things that get kind of replaced. It's more common. So uh, maybe you're using uh, MySQL and RDS, but, uh, but increasingly you might want to be using Aurora for more scalability uh, at the cost of lock- lock-in, as we've discussed, because Aurora is an Amazon-only solution. Now, you mentioned Google. So to help illustrate the purpose of the Amazon open guide could you imagine a similar open guide being created for google or is there something that is characteristically different about google where you wouldn't necessarily need an open guide perhaps the the incentives are different or uh, or do you think an open guide would be equally useful for google yeah absolutely i actually think the same principles apply across a wide range of technical problems where, where people need to share knowledge a little better um so absolutely the the real bottleneck is uh uh getting enough uh, experts with enough time to put it into it, just like any open source project. Um, if anyone, any of your listeners is a Google Cloud expert and wants to talk to me about this, I'd love to, love to brainstorm on it. And, and, and we're, you know, we definitely have had some, uh, some interest in that. And it, it, it's, a, it, it's a very similar, uh, and it's actually sort of symbiotic thing because a lot of the insights you have around Amazon Web Services do map over to Google Cloud services. There's, there's in fact, whole tables of sort of, sort of equivalency between different services. So, uh, and, many, and a small subset of folks are experts in both. So, uh, absolutely. How do you see that competition between Google and Amazon shaping up in the future? Is it going to continue to be where they kind of, <coughs> excuse me, develop parallel services and uh, kind of have uh, things that copy one another or do you think there's going to be a diversion a differentiation um i don't know like i i see google really developing an expert in managed machine learning like they're really betting a lot on managed tensorflow um you can obviously see a potential for kubernetes uh on google cloud being a really big business for them um how do you think this will shape up yeah, so you're trying to get me to be a a, a pundit on all this. And <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe the wrong. If it's the wrong question, we can talk about something else. No, no, I, I uh, so so I mean I, I'm happy to share. Obviously, all these things are hard to predict, but uh, it, they're 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 really like business. Uh, they're, they're they're business projections. Um, I think uh, Google on a lot of things is going for feature parity or or uh, or slight plus ups on. Uh, you know, um, so things like um, uh, uh, some of the you know basic server capabilities are pretty similar, but things like uh, and, and I should I should say I'm getting a lot of this from Google Cloud experts. Either my friends, I I'm not a hands-on Google Cloud expert myself, but um, but 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 it, there's a lot of uh, services where Google also has second mover advantage. So you know you can look at. Uh, some of the, the ways things are deployed, like uh, like RDS and Aurora, and 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 say, well, we Google has the the chops to build uh, you know BigQuery and Bigtable and things like this from scratch, and so they can they can uh, build some of these things with different architectures that might scale or be more useful. And so some of those those um, some of the solutions may actually have advantages at Google because they get to correct some of the learnings from from Amazon services. And then finally, there's a bunch, like you mentioned, which I think where there's services based on actual data, so like machine learned natural language models, so there's a natural language service Google offers, there's speech service. Those are maybe not out of the gate blowing people away yet, but they are, um, 
they're very credible and Google has historically an advantage on those areas. And so there are going to be some services where they're just going to probably be able to out-execute Amazon. I think when it comes to enterprise support and reliable services, Google is a few years behind. Like people just don't think of Google as an enterprise company. Um, with Diane, Diane Green, uh, you know, taking the helm there, I think it's that has really seems to be changing. At least the perception is there that that, that it's changing. And um, and I, I think the information has a nice article on that from a few couple months ago, where they're talking a little bit about internal Google. Uh, reorgs and, and how that has affected their their execution there, but but it's really um, uh, it it's really far more interesting now, and I think Amazon is definitely getting going to have their they're dominant, but they're going to have to work to maintain their dominance. It, it, unlike uh, a few years ago, it looked like they were the only game in town at this scale. Yeah, well, you mentioned those services like the voice recognition service or the um, I think the image recognition service. And those things are, I think of those as like kind of higher level APIs. There's not really a, I mean, I don't think there's anything analogous on AWS. And these things seem like really exciting primitives to build on. But I think the costs for them are really onerous right now, though. Like it's still quite expensive to to get an image um, recognized because I guess it's just still very compute intensive. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, but if it's critical to your application, you might pay that. Um, so it depends. I think we have, we don't know what the ecosystem of those services looks like yet. And so I'm sure Google is exploring what they can price. Uh, there's, there's some advantages to starting high and seeing who's willing to pay it. And then, uh, and then before you go commodity depends on, on, uh, but I, I do think that it'll, will depend on, on Google's pricing power there. Can they can they price something that nobody else can build? In which case, they can probably can charge quite a bit more for it. Um, whereas when it comes to things like just storage, which you know you can get so many places, including Amazon, uh, it's it's a commodity, more of a commodity that where there's there's real uh, competition on the price. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit more about these open guides. Um, you also wrote the open guide to equity compensation and. Uh, I thought this was really interesting because equity compensation, similar to AWS, is something where this kind of like insider knowledge is a lot of knowledge that probably has propagated over two people having a drink together, um, but there was less of a place where it was uh, all put into one. I mean, there's there's things like, um, I guess, venture deals, books like venture deals that kind of has some of this information in it. But um, what, speaking more abstractly about the open guide idea, what are the commonalities between equity compensation and AWS where these, like, what are the, the, the commonalities between these two types of knowledge bases that would cause you to write both of these guides? Right. And I, and I might also throw out there another one that's been very popular. It doesn't have the name. It has a different title called The Art of Command Line. But it's another technical GitHub publication, uh, which is uh, put out in 2015, which is really quite popular on GitHub. But it's up to about, uh, I think we're up to 17 language translations on that one. Um, so it's pretty exciting just to see how people are interested in, in these sort of GitHub publications. So there's a few of them. But, um, but the equity compensation one is an interesting one because it's not an engineering topic. And you're like, oh, what are the commonalities? And I think there are commonalities. So really it's around... It is related to that beer test again, right? So what you know, you're you're mulling over an offer from uh, the latest startup or some interesting company, or you know, or 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 the random the random Fortune 500 company down the down the road, and you're like, um, you're uh, you're you're just wondering if it's a fair offer, and like, how do these stock option things work, or how do these RSUs work? Very few people know those things. It's not entirely in, in, uh, different from. Uh, from technical decision making, it's it's very technical, like engineering. It's just no one tends to write down all the information and give you good tips. And so that was uh, an effort with uh, uh, a lawyer co-author, um, and we, you know, he helped make sure that what we wrote down was was correct, <laughs> actually from a, a legal point of view and tax point of view. And uh, and but but really, it arose from the same kinds of things. Just like friends come to me and ask, well. How do I do X or Y in AWS? Often I have friends in the startup world asking me, so is I'm getting 50,000 stock options. Is that good? And I'm like, back up a minute. You know, you, There's a lot of things you need to know for me to just answer that question. And I don't know that I can answer that question for everyone. So why don't we build sort of a cached knowledge base of that kind of information 
where people can can get answers that are helpful. And uh, it's a little more of a of a, a reusable resource instead of just a blog. And so it um, it it's very similar thinking. I mean, I th- I've been thinking about this issue a lot. The compensation question um because you want to incentivize your employees but of course you also want to keep your cost structure healthy um and if you can convince your employees that uh, a deal that kind of underpays them is a sufficient deal for them to put in enough work it kind of makes sense to you from a employer but it may end up having uh, long-term resentment if your employee ends up feeling undercompensated. Um, and we did we had a very interesting show a while ago with my friend Hasib, who uh, you may have heard the story where he just like negoti- he negotiated really hard against Airbnb for a really big salary. Um, and he was just coming from a coding boot camp, and but he ended up getting a lot more salary than you would expect from somebody just going from a coding boot camp. And it just it it raised a lot of questions about how much money are people leaving on the table. So I think it's interesting, like you know, that guy was was all about just <clears throat> you know what 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 makes sense from an equity compensation point of view. But um, then you know if you if you have that knowledge going in, you also decide to negotiate. Um, there's there's even more levels to uh, considerations that you might want to have. Yeah, that's, this is a big topic, of course. Uh, I do think um, it's one of those topics where it's really critical, both for employers and employees, and especially in startups. Startups are often the case where things can, the more extreme things happen, and you know, you know, both in terms of overcompensation, undercompensation, disasters, or you know, big payouts. But um, but it it really is uh, a case where. My belief is long term, it's in everyone's interest to compensate, uh, you know, employees fairly in stock and in in uh, in equity and in in cash, depending on what's you know what the situation is. I think if you lowball people, if if either side has really out negotiates the other, and and you, very often it is on the employer's side where so the employee has so little information they don't know that the offer is worth a lot or too little, um, and um, so. I think that sort of asymmetric information means that the person with less information usually gets taken advantage of on average. And that also means that um, long term, though, I don't think that's in anyone's interest. A startup can lowball all its employees for a little while, but that comes and burns the startup later when all those employees realize it and leave. So it really is in everyone's interest to sort of have a trusted sense of, well, what is sort of fair for this situation? And uh, when you have that, I think the market operates more effectively for for both sides. It's not, uh, you know, an employee versus employer thing. It's like, let's make sure that compensation is kind of makes sense um, and not be taking advantage of each other's ignorance. Okay, so I want to wrap up um, just the, another note on the AWS Open Guide. What is an example of something or maybe a few things that you've seen in the community recently, maybe in the Slack channel or recent additions to that open guide on GitHub. You can go to GitHub and find the AWS open guide. Um, what are some recent things you've seen that surprised you? Things that would not have been discussed in a single place. Things that perhaps reminded you, this is why the guide exists. These are the great uh, types of things that that people can use the AWS open guide as a repository for. Sure. Well, I mean, I, I routinely come back to the gotchas. I actually think gotchas, it sounds a little negative, but they're the, some of the most important things to know. You can go read about basics elsewhere and Google them, and you can uh, probably learn some of the, easy, the kind of easy, easy to middle level things by doing them. But when it comes to gotchas, you can usually only learn them by having someone tell you or making the mistake yourself. And so there's just been a long series of very focused PRs, and these are some of my favorites and the ones we love to approve the fastest, which is when someone says, you know, I've been burned by this one problem, and I'll share it. And they'll give a pull request to, and say, you know, you know, whether it's around VPCs. I, I'll just give you an example. So uh, one that, that, um, that burns a lot of startups is really costly is when they're trying to connect their office network with their Amazon cloud. And if the IP ranges happen to coincide, you're basically just screwed in a whole bunch of bad ways. So if the, and it's really hard to switch it. 
because you have to go through and change the IP addresses of all your devices. Now, there's, that's not like highlighted anywhere that I know of online, but I've talked to a few engineers who's, who have contributed now to the guide who have mentioned this problem, and they all were, were talking about how painful it was just because they'd happened to pick the wrong IP ranges on their office. That's a terribly technical little detail, but it's really painful, and it costs like large amounts of effort. And by sharing that, I mean, if, if 10 people avoid that sort of problem, that, that's an amazing amount of time saved. So those sorts of things really, really uh, kind of make me think that this effort is, is worth it, is, is that that kind of value you add. It's, it's helping avoid some of the negative things that, that, are, that we all waste our time on. There are a bunch of others, but I, 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 do, I do find the gotchas are, are, and I, are really helpful, and I encourage folks to keep uh, you know, submitting them and, and, and helping, us, helping us figure out which ones are the really bad ones. Great. All right. Well, Josh, that seems like a great place to stop. Thanks for coming on the show. <laughs> on a negative note, yes. <laughs> on, on, on a negative note. No, I mean, it's a positive note. We've Now we've got a solution uh, to these gotchas, or it's, it's something asymptoting towards a solution. Um, and and I would add just that, that, you know, if you do find the guide, please do join us on Slack. It's um, There's a Slack group, and share some of these or, or pull requests. Uh, we really uh, love contributions. All right, Josh Levy, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Josh. Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com slash sedaily. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-O dot com slash sedaily. Thanks again, Symphono. Wow.